So kids love asking questions, don't they? Uh, my, my family went in June on a road trip down to Georgia to visit family. 20 hours, nonstop. Lord have mercy. Six kids, five of them can ask questions. The baby can't. And you can imagine the questions that were asked, right? What's the first road trip question for kids? Are we there yet? That's right. Are we there yet? We also got, can we stop to go to the bathroom? No, we just did that 30 minutes ago. When are we going to stop for lunch? Can I have my snack? Do I have to watch this movie? You get to watch a movie in a car. I never did that as a kid. Just be content, right? Or we were driving from Massachusetts to Atlanta. So what state are we in? That's a fun one, right? I, don't, I have no idea what state we're in. And then my favorite with as many kids as we have, can he move to another seat? Right? <laughs> then you have the COVID travel questions, the road trip COVID questions. Why aren't we staying in a hotel? Well, because none of them are open. Is this rest area even open? I have no idea. Where's my mask? I don't know that either. Where's the hand sanitizer? Is this restaurant open or is it just drive through and it's, it's not just kids who ask questions and not just on, on road trips. That is how we learn, right? That's how we gather information, whether externally or internally. And as we come to John chapter 18, it's 40 verses. We didn't read all of it, just some selections. But in John chapter 18, it proves this point of how we learn by asking questions. Because I just listed 13 or 14 road trip questions for my kids. In these 40 verses, John chapter 18, there are 18 different questions or mentions of questioning. Jesus asked questions. Whom do you seek? Verses 4 and verse 7. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Verse 11. Why do you ask me? Why do you strike me? People ask Jesus questions. Pilate, for example. Are you the king of the Jews? What have you done? Or what is truth? You see people asking other people questions, like Peter, for example. Twice people ask him, you also are not one of this man, Jesus' disciples, are you? And once again, they ask, didn't I see you in the garden with him? Now, I think it would be a worthy study for you to walk through all 18 questions of this on your own, but I'm not going to do that this morning, because that would mean an 18-point sermon, and I love you more than that, right? But we have to ask and consider, is there a major theme being addressed here with all these questions? Is there a, a major question that all these other questions fall under the banner of? And I think the answer is yes. I think John is doing this on purpose. And I think that question is extremely important, essential for us in what it means to know and follow Jesus. So that overarching question of John 18 is, is this. What kind of death is Jesus going to die? That's what John 18 answers for us. Or rather, what kind of death is Jesus dying? Because he is now walking to his death. And we can answer that question in one sentence. What kind of death did Jesus die? Jesus died a willing, atoning, substitutionary, innocent death for sinners like you and me. Okay? It's a lot there, but that's John 18 in a nutshell. Did you hear that? There's four things. That's where we're headed. Four things. Number one, Jesus died a willing death. We see that in verses 1 through 11 in the scene of Jesus' arrest in the garden. 
Number two, Jesus died in atoning death. We'll talk about what that word means. We see that as we zoom in on verse 11 in Jesus' imagery of the cup. Number three, Jesus dies in a a substitutionary death. We see that in verses 12 through 27 in the account of Peter's denial of Jesus. And then fourth and finally, Jesus dies in innocent death. And we see this in the scene of Jesus being questioned before the Roman governor, Pilate. So that's where we're headed this morning. And so let's jump right in. What's the first answer to this question? What kind of death is Jesus dying? Jesus dies a willing death, a willing death. This passage begins by telling us that Jesus and his disciples have gone to a garden that they frequented throughout his ministry. Other gospels tell us that this is the Garden of Gethsemane. And Judas knew this place well, we're told. That makes sense. They frequented there. And so he has uh, gone to betray Jesus. So he's he's taken a a group of Roman guards and officers from the Sanhedrin, religious leaders, their guards. And he has gone to this garden to arrest Jesus. And verse 4 reads, Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? Now we notice instantly, don't we, in verse 4, that none of this catches Jesus off guard. It's all a part of God's plan. He had, we're told in verse 4, a knowledge of this event. And with this knowledge, he didn't wait. He willingly stepped forward before they even requested him. He's the one asking the questions. Now remember, back in John chapter 13, Jesus already dismissed Judas from the Passover meal. And said, what you're going to do, go and do it quickly. Go betray me. Now you and I, if we knew someone was coming for, uh, to arrest us unjustly, what would we do? We wouldn't freak with the same places. We, we wouldn't go out in public. We'd go find a closet and just hunker down for a few days, right? But what does Jesus do? He leads his disciples and he himself goes to the garden knowing exactly what would happen. He didn't hide He didn't run. He didn't try to pick a fight like Peter does in a moment. Why? Because the hour has come for him to lay down his life, for him to fulfill the purpose for which God sent him. He goes willingly. We then read in verses 5 and 6, they answered him. He asked, whom do they seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with him, verse 6, When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So the sheer power of Jesus is displayed here. And that shows us, again, that he gives himself willingly, right? If he wanted, another gospel says he could have called on a slew of angels in an instant to end this. His very speaking and divinely revealing himself knocks these men to the ground. If he wanted to stop it, he could. He had complete and total power here. Now, if you've been with us in the Gospel of John or you're familiar with the Gospel of John at all, you know how important this phrase, I am, is. And that's really what it is here in the original language, not I am he, but simply I am. We've looked at the seven I am statements of Jesus. What are these? They're they're divine self-revelations of who Jesus is. He is saying, just as God revealed himself in Exodus 3.14 as the great I am, he's saying, that's me. I am divine. So when he answers them, it's this glimpse of, of God to these men. They hear it, and 
And what happens to them? Now, now remember, these are soldiers. These are battle-hardened soldiers. And at the sheer voice of Jesus, they buckle to their knees. They're knocked to the ground. And they fall back. See, this shows us that the primary work that, it, that is bringing Jesus to the cross here, the primary player is not Judas, the betrayer, though he's involved. It's, it's not the, the Jewish religious authorities who hated him, though they're involved. It's not the Romans. Friends, it's not even the devil himself, though all of those parties are involved in the death of Jesus. But what is, what is Jesus showing us? The primary one at work here is our sovereign God, fulfilling his purpose of sending his son to the cross. And so Jesus, who is solely committed to doing the will of the Father, we've seen this all throughout John's gospel, he willingly steps forward. We read again in verse 7. So he, he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. So apparently after these men compose themselves, they stand up, right? they ask him again, and Jesus, we, we see another glimpse here. John's showing us not only the divinity of Jesus, but also the humanity of Jesus. Jesus, the great I am, is also Jesus from Nazareth. He is fully God, the great I am, but he was also born and lived in a city just like you and I lived in a city. And this is the one who presents himself to die. And then look again at verses 8 and 9. Jesus answered, I told you that I'm he. So if you seek me, let these men go. And this was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have not lost one. So Jesus, as he willingly steps forward to be arrested and soon crucified, he also keeps his promise to protect his sheep. And John quotes what Pastor Clint preached through last week, chapter 17, verse 12. Of those you gave me, I have lost not one. And so this also draws our attention back to, to John 10, right? Where Jesus, the good shepherd, he's willingly lays down his life for his sheep. John 10, 18 says, No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my Father. And then later on in John 10, verse 28, he says, I give them, my disciples, eternal life. They will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. D.A. Carson says of, of Jesus here in the garden, Jesus offers up his life in obedience to his father, not as a pathetic martyr buffeted by the ill winds of cruel fate. And as he does this, he lovingly keeps his promise to protect his sheep. He says, let them go, and steps forward. And then Peter gets involved. That's like my favorite gospel phrase, and then Peter. Right, Peter's like that friend you had in high school who thought he knew more than he really did and liked to talk a lot, and you're always wondering, is he going to say or do something dumb to get us in trouble? Right, no one had friends like that. I might have been that guy. And the answer to that question is usually yes, he's going to say or do something dumb to get you in trouble. That's Peter. And so verse 10, we read, Then Simon Peter, having a sword, which, <laughs> just stop, you know it's, gonna, it's not going to end well, right? Who gave Peter a sword? <laughs> having a sword, he drew it, and he struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Now, we can see this so often throughout the Gospels, but are we not like Peter here? 
Right? We're, we're so slow to understand the purposes of God in our lives, and we're so quick to take the reins for ourselves and rely on our own self-sufficiency. That's what Peter's doing here. Jesus told Peter time and time again that he must die. The disciples knew this. They, they, they didn't understand. He said, I must suffer and die. But Peter, instead of trusting, he looks at Jesus and essentially says, don't worry, Jesus, I've got a sword, right? I, I've got this. You don't worry about it. You're the great I am. Yes, you're the Christ, but I'm going to handle this. I'm going to chop this guy's ear off, right? And can you imagine what would have happened? By the way, Luke tells us Jesus healed Malchus's ear, just put it right back on. And if that didn't happen, you, Rome doesn't mess around. They would have killed Peter. So Jesus saves him once again. Can you imagine what would have happened if Peter had his way? They were extremely outnumbered in the garden. They likely would have been crushed instantly. But say, say they overcame, right? And, and they conquered. They had their, their way. And Jesus doesn't go to the cross. And they start a, a political revolution. That eventually would have died out, right? Can you imagine what would happen if God let you and I run the show of our lives? There's a word for that. It's called sin, it, it would be a complete and utter disaster. So Jesus says, put your sword away, Peter, or put your self-reliance away, Kevin, or put your unbelief away, church, and trust me. Shall I not do what the Father has for me? Jesus willingly marches to his death, and may we willingly trust him in response. And then this leads us to verse 11. So we see number one, Jesus died a willing death. Then number two, Jesus died an atoning death. And for this, we need to zero in on verse 11. So we just kind of breeze through 11 verses. But we just want to look at one half of a verse now. What Jesus says here is essential in us understanding what happens on the cross. He says, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Now what does Jesus mean by drink the cup? The disciples, who were Jews well-versed in the Old Testament, would have understand, understood this biblical language. As you, as you look through the Old Testament, you see that the idea, the image of a cup has both positive and negative connotations. So, for example, we see a cup of blessing in Psalm 23.5. The blessing of deliverance from enemies. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, and my cup overflows. Or in Psalm 116.13, I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. That's positive, a cup of blessing. Now, this is not the cup that Jesus is talking about. We know this because in Luke's account, for example, Jesus agonizes over receiving this cup. Listen to what he says in Luke chapter 22, verse 42. Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So it's not the cup of blessing. Well, what kind of cup is it? Well, there's another kind of cup mentioned in the Old Testament, and that's the cup of God's wrath and judgment. Psalm 75, 8 says this, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Now, that's a Bible verse you will not see printed on a coffee cup, right? But that's the cup that Jesus is talking about in John 18, 11. 
Now, why would Jesus drink this cup? Well, this points to the reality that Jesus' death is an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Do you remember what John said? His cousin, John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus? Behold the what? The lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Referring to Old Testament sacrificial language. This, this lamb language and this cup language is Old Testament imagery that shows us something extremely important about the death of Jesus. You see, God is a holy God. We sang about that before. I think we understand that phrase, God is holy, but deep down, we have a hard time with it because it means that God cannot ignore or excuse sin. He can't sweep your sin under the rug. For him to do that would actually be unjust. God is holy, and man, you and I are sinful. We've rebelled against God and his good and righteous commands. We've followed in the footsteps of Adam, our first father, in the garden, and because the wages of sin is death, there must be punishment for our sin. The cup must be poured out because God is holy and just and we are sinners. Now this, this, this talk is an affront to our modern sensibilities, isn't it? The idea of wrath and, and judgment is just offensive to us and I think there's two primary reasons for this. The first is we just don't think that God is that holy. Let's just be be real for a minute. We can sing about it, right? And we say, yes, we understand that that is a Bible doctrine. But deep down, we we get to those passages like Psalm 75, and we hear about God's wrath being poured out on sinners, and we cringe. And maybe we even think, God, can you just lighten up just, just a little bit? But that's because we downplay the holiness of God. He is infinitely unlike us and worthy of only glory and honor and praise. And that leads to the second reason why I think we have a hard time with this. Because we downplay the holiness of God, we don't take sin very seriously, including our own. Friends, we're not merely imperfect people. The whole world can agree with that. Oh, nobody's perfect. We don't just make mistakes from time to time. We're not good people who occasionally mess it up. Friends, we have committed cosmic treason against the God of the universe. We have scorned the only creator worthy of all glory and honor and praise. We are sinners and we stand before a holy God. We shouldn't be excused from our sin any more than a known guilty murderer should walk off scot-free. That would offend you. We deserve to drink the cup of God's wrath down to the dregs. And here is Jesus in a garden saying, I will drink that cup. Now you notice that? This is happening in a garden. Where else have you seen turmoil in a garden before? Genesis 3. Jesus, the lamb who also drinks the cup, he's also, the New Testament calls him, the second Adam. Right? You see what he's doing here? In Eden, in the Garden of Eden, Adam sinned, bringing judgment. And in Gethsemane, Jesus says, I will take that judgment upon myself. In the Garden of Eden, what does Adam do when he gets caught in sin? He hides himself. But in Gethsemane, what does Jesus do? He willingly and boldly presents himself. In the Garden of Eden... A sword is drawn to keep sinners from the presence of God. But in Gethsemane, Jesus says, put away your sword. 
I am here to conquer death. Friends, this is the beauty and grace and love of God in the gospel. You and I deserve to drink the cup, but we don't have to because Jesus drinks it for us. There's There's another word for this in the Bible. It's a big theological word, but it's a Bible word and it's a good gospel word. And the word is propitiation. Propitiation. John writes elsewhere, 1 John 4.10, he says, in this is love. Notice that. This is theological language, but he's saying, notice, this is how love is displayed. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So what does that word mean? Some translations say atoning sacrifice. That's part of it. But, but really, deep down, it means that Jesus bears the wrath of God and satisfies it on our behalf. He pacifies God's wrath in his death. Propitiation. Listen to how John Murray describes this word. He says, The doctrine of propitiation is precisely this, that God loved the objects of his wrath, the world, so much that he gave his own son to the end that he by his blood, should make provision for the removal of his wrath. It was Christ so to deal with the wrath that he loved would no longer be the objects of wrath. And listen to this, love would achieve its aim of making the children of wrath the children of God's good pleasure. That's how much God loves sinners like you and me. We deserve it, but he doesn't pour it out on us. In love, his son steps forward on our behalf. Now, wrapped up in this reality is another important gospel concept. And it's this idea of substitution. Okay? Substitution. That leads us to number three. Jesus died a substitutionary death. Okay? So we move on. After he's arrested... Jesus is taken first to Annas, the high priest. And we see this in verses 12 and 13. Now, just so you know, there's two high priests in this passage. What's, what's that all about? Well, Annas was actually deposed by Rome as the high priest, so he wasn't officially recognized. His son-in-law, Caiaphas, was recognized that year. But, according to the Jews, high priest was a lifetime position. So even though Rome, who occupied uh, Israel, could say, he's not your high priest anymore. They're like, yeah, we don't really care what you think. He is our high priest. And then Rome recognized Caiaphas. Okay, so there's two high priests here. And Jesus goes first before Annas. And notice what John tells us in verse 14. He says it was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. He's reminding us of what Caiaphas said back in chapter 11. Caiaphas was thinking practically. Wouldn't it be better for this one uh, crazy guy to die before Rome sees something's going on and crushes all of us? But in saying that, he unknowingly prophesied Jesus' substitutionary death. Do you hear that? One man should die for the people. When someone walked into your class and you're like, hey, wait a second, that's not my teacher My teacher's not here today. You say what? There's a substitute teacher, someone standing in the place of your teacher. Well, friends, likewise, Jesus' death is for sinners. It's in the place of sinners like you and me as a substitute. Then John gives us this back and forth narrative 
of Jesus' trial and Peter's denial. Now here's what John's doing here. This this is important. He's brilliantly weaving in this doctrine of substitution with narrative here. We see contrast between Peter, who denies Jesus to cover his, his own life, and Jesus, who willingly steps forward for Peter as a substitute. Now then... We uh, read in verses 15 through 18 of the first denial of Jesus by Peter. Peter and this other disciple, which is John, they're going to the courtyard. And in verse 17, we read they're trying to listen to this trial of Jesus at a distance. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. Isn't that a lot different than Jesus' response in the garden? who steps forward and says, I am. Peter says, no, 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 I'm not. That's not me. He denies him. Then in verses 19 through 24, we shift scenes to Jesus being questioned by Annas. And he's asked about two things, his disciples and his teaching. So they want to know, they want to hear him say something blasphemous. He doesn't. And they also want to hear him throw his disciples under the bus. But he doesn't do that either because he's loving them till the end. Then we read in verse 20, Jesus answered him, I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. And when he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, is that how you answer a high priest? And Jesus answered him, if what I said was wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? See, notice Jesus doesn't mention his disciples at all here. He doesn't say, no, no, I'm not the only one. These guys were guilty too. He protects them till the end. He's loving them even though they've abandoned him. Then we return again to Peter, who denies Jesus two more times, and we read the devastating words of verse 27. Peter again denied it, and at once the rooster crowed, just as Jesus had said. And the mighty Peter has fallen. See, John does this, he puts these scenes together, because he wants to show us the clear picture of the failure and inability of Peter to stand with Christ While Christ stands to die for Peter and sinners like you and me. It's a picture of Christ's substitution on our behalf. Where Peter failed, Christ succeeded. One man is dying for his people. You see, Jesus is abandoned as our substitute that we might be accepted. He's falsely accused as our substitute that we might be vindicated by God. He's denied by man as our substitute so that we may never be denied by him before God. Friends, Jesus drinks the cup of God's wrath as our substitute so we, Psalm 23, can drink the cup of blessing. And and let me just say this. This is is the heart of the gospel. And we, we can only just touch on it for a few minutes. So as I was reading this week, I was very encouraged and helped by this book called It Is Well, Expositions on the Substitutionary Atonement. And lo and behold, I had two copies, because pastors always have too many books. So if you will read this book, it's 14 expositions on different passages on this topic. 
it's yours today. You will be encouraged by this. And if you're like, hey, I want one, but you gave it away already, we'll get you one. This will bless your soul to go deeper into this. But it's so important for us to know that Jesus died by, he took our wrath that we deserved upon himself in our place. Here's a summary verse for that. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, hear that, in our place, so that in him, Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. What a verse. What a verse to memorize and meditate on this week. Now, none of this would be possible if Jesus was guilty of sin. You see that? He couldn't drink the cup from the Father for us. He couldn't die in our place because he would not be able to die for sins because he'd be a sinner just like us. He would need redemption. But friends, another thing John shows us here is that Jesus is completely innocent and guiltless. Which leads us to number four. Jesus died an innocent death. Now we see all throughout this passage that Jesus is completely innocent of the charges brought against him. Which is in contrast, by the way, to the, the wicked hypocrisy of the religious leaders who pretend they're innocent. We read of them in verse 28. Now they're bringing him to Pilate. It says, Then they led Jesus away from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters. Why not? So that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. You see the irony here? As they're killing the Son of God, they're self-righteously attempting to keep themselves clean by staying out of a Gentile court, by following religious rules. And the irony is not lost on John. And then in verses 29 through 32, we see Pilate, and brought before Pilate, and Pilate went, on, went outside and said to them, what accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews, the Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Do you notice that when Pilate asks for the reason for an accusation, they, they give a non-answer? The Jewish authorities say, Well, hey, listen, Pilate, <laughs> if he wasn't guilty... We wouldn't be wasting your time. They don't, they don't tell him what he did wrong because there's no credible, consistent accusation against Jesus. And Pilate knows this. So he tries to throw it back on them. Hey, listen, I'm a Roman pagan. You guys are, are into this Yahweh stuff. You handle it on your own. You handle it by your own law. And their response shows that they are not interested in a fair trial. They want Jesus dead. They say, we can't... We can't perform capital punishment. Rome had taken that privilege away from them. And we're told this is to show that Jesus would die by being lifted up, just like he said on a Roman cross. Now we get to Pilate questioning Jesus directly. Verse 33 says, Pilate entered his headquarters. So this is private with Jesus. Again, and he called Jesus in and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? And Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have de delivered you over to me. What have you done? You see, Pilate knows he's innocent, or at the very least knows that he doesn't deserve death. 
So he says, listen, man, you got to tell me what you've done because these guys see, are serious about killing you. So he says, what have you done? And listen to how Jesus responds. Verse 36, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Then Pilate said to him, so you're a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Now there's enough in, there, in that passage about the kingdom for another sermon. But notice just in some, Jesus tells Pilate that he's been a perfect witness to the truth of God. And how does Pilate respond? Verse 38, what is truth? So here's more irony. that The man who's supposed to decide the truth of the matter can't even decide if truth is a reality. So he knows he's innocent, but he wants to, he wants to remove himself, recuse himself of any connection. So he decides that Jesus is just some teacher of an obscure moral philosophy, and he writes him off. But in doing so, he gives the clearest declaration of Jesus' innocence. Verse 38, after he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber, or a footnote in your Bible might say, insurrectionist, a terrorist. You see, the guiltless, innocent one is sentenced to death while the guilty criminal walks free. And brothers and sisters, without the innocence, the guiltlessness of Jesus, we would have no atoning sacrifice. We would have no substitute to die for us. To use an illustration, the check that Jesus wrote with his life, if he were a sinner like us, it would bounce because his account is in debt just like ours is. But he's the innocent one, the guiltless God-man. And he willingly laid down his life as the atoning substitutionary sacrifice. And in doing so, friends, he paid the debt in full for you and I who would believe in him. Now, what, what does this mean for us? Well, have you noticed in this passage that as Jesus is dying, the flashlight is being revealed on the hearts of those around him? We see who Peter really is. We see who the religious authorities really are. We see who Pilate really is. Friends, you and I are like Peter, aren't we? We can talk a big, big game about following Jesus at times, but in reality, we struggle with self-reliance and self-sufficiency, and we're self-conscious and in love with the approval of others, so much so that we're fearful of being associated with Jesus at times. Jesus died for deniers like Peter and deniers like you and deniers like me. Friends, you and I are like the religious authorities. At times so self-righteous that we've confused following God with opposing him. We've tried to maintain our religious habits and self-justify while rejecting the very one who can save us from our sins. And Jesus dies 
for hypocrites like them and hypocrites like you and hypocrites like me. We're, we're like Pilate, aren't we? Attempting to deny truth altogether, especially when it threatens our comforts. Right? We try to push off Jesus as if we can be indifferent to him. But friends, in, listen to me. Indifference to Jesus is rejection of Jesus. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus died for people pleasers and truth deniers and indifferent sinners like Pilate and like you and like me. And friends, this last verse is my favorite one. You and I are Barabbas. We know so little about Barabbas, but he's the guilty, sentenced criminal sitting in spiritual prison. That's us. Bound with the chains of our habitual sin that we feel like we can't shake our shame, our bitterness, dreadfully awaiting the day of our judgment. Jesus died for prisoners like Barabbas and like you and me. I love the Charles Wesley hymn, And Can It Be? The verse where he says, when Jesus steps in, here's what happens. My chains fell off, my heart was free, I rose, went forth, and followed thee. All of those sins, everything that was in that cup, is gone because Jesus took it upon himself. So friends, what kind of death did Jesus die? A willing, atoning, substitutionary, innocent death for deniers, for hypocrites, for people pleasers and guilty prisoners like you and me. And here's the only application this morning. May we turn from our sin and believe in him unto life. Let's pray together.